This podcast you're about to listen to is a controlled experiment using trained intellectual monkeys. Remember that these are the opinions of real monkeys and may not reflect the opinions of the highly trained human scientists in charge. And most importantly, no monkeys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Here's a thing I forgot my intro, but we'll just go with it. <laughs> it was recorded later. If you were... Oh yeah, that's the, that is true. That is true. <laughs> no one will know anything. The video will be a bit like, huh, that's weird. They look really tired for this intro. And welcome to the Infinite Monkeys uh, podcast. Today we are joined with uh, the wonderful uh, Tyler Branson. Tyler, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Let us know what you do. Um, describe who you are and uh, why you're so dashingly handsome. Ooh, that's getting steamy. Um, <laughs> steamy already. Um, my name's Tyler Branson. Uh, uh, I'm talking to you now from the territory of the Lekwungen speaking people. The Songhees of Squimalt and Wasainich, um, or more commonly known as Victoria, British Columbia. I'm a grad student, uh, uh, master's student at the University of Victoria. I'm in their sociology program and their CSPT designation stands for cultural, social, and political thought. It's kind of like the where all the philosophy imposters meet up to get an extra accreditation to their grad program and get an opportunity to study more philosophy from their regular humanities program. I grew up in the Lower Mainland. I actually went to high school with Tyler here um, before going to Douglas College in UFE. I did a Bachelor of Arts with a major in Sociology and a second major in Honors Philosophy. My passion is definitely philosophy. Um, yeah. I'm not sure where I'm going after this, but probably work for a bit and save up some money and maybe do a PhD, but who knows? So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one uh, question right from the top to get this off of my mind. It's been something that's been really uh, making me question um, life in general. You said you're very passionate about philosophy, correct? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Might be an so understatement. What it, <laughs> so I've always, I've always been curious. What is your, how does it make you feel that me holding a PhD, a doctor of philosophy, <laughs> how does that make you feel? <laughs> I mean, I'm stoked for you. I'm so happy for you. Um, it kind of gets into like what philosophy is and like where the sciences stand. But I think when they call it doctor of philosophy, I think that's an indication of something. So. Whether you like it or not, you're one so, of so, us. So, 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 just you know, I just want to make sure there's no like uh, negativity between between us. Even though I'm a philosopher and I know nothing about philosophy, <laughs> what you're about to tell, talk to me about. Yeah, well, philosophy is just like, well, 
the root of the word is like love of wisdom or love of knowledge. So you had to have loved it to have gone that far. So, so, and then on, on that question, uh, I just want to, if you happen to know, this is more just a curiosity, um, of my, uh, uh, of my brain, my, uh, degrees over there, it says doctor of philosophy, biochemistry and something, something, something. Does yours say Doctor of Philosophy? Philosophy. Well, I don't have a PhD, so I just have a a BA. So, but if I did so, do a PhD, it would would say that. I think. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'll have to find out. <laughs> if you if you ever go into one of your professors like offices and they have their degree post on the wall, please just send me a picture because I've always wondered. Yeah, I'll look. I'll ask. I'll find out. That's really funny. Yeah, because if you have a PhD in philosophy, it's there's philosophy in two places there. Yeah. <laughs> so for so for everyone uh, out there, um, and maybe not everyone, but definitely people like me who know absolutely uh, nothing about philosophy, and I don't really understand what philosophers do or what they are. Tyler, could you answer me the question that's at the front of I'm sure everyone's mind? Could you tell us? What is philosophy? Oh my god. I bet I have like five books behind me that address that issue. Um, (laughs) But like, I'll give you my answer, and then whoever listens to this and like thinks philosophy is something different, I'll let them complain because there's like everyone answers it differently. Um, But for me, it's just like being very critical of like absolutely everything and delving into a method of critique that tries to get underneath um, various aspects of society and culture and ideas and how we know things and why we know things and what makes us want to know things. Um, Which is kind of annoying because like, I'll like think about critiquing something and like, it's very lonely. (laughs) So there's, (laughs) There's not a lot of people that talk about the same things. Like undergrad philosophy is tiny, especially like I'm, I'm more in the tradition of continental philosophy, which even most philosophers don't consider philosophy. So, and that's a lot of the stuff that factors into things like psychology and sociology and um, like some bit of economic theory and aesthetic theory and stuff like that. It's a lot less analytical than a lot of more English um, philosophy. Um, so it, like, what is philosophy? Like, it's hard to explain without like talking about what you do with it. Um, so I'm personally interested in it because I like looking at society. That's why I did sociology as a sort of secondary area. Um, but I like looking at like why we use the methods of analysis we use to look at society. So like, why do people like to use economics to look at society? What are the roots of that? Uh, like, how does that idea emerge? Why do we decide that we want to follow that? Why do governments decide they want to follow that? And how society evolves and changes because we're using that method, for example. Or in sociology, I do a lot of analysis of methods. So, um, like, why... Like, what happens when we decide that we want to use Marx to look at society? Like, why do we want to use conflict theory to look at society? What sort of answers is that going to give us? How are those going to change society? Um, and then, like, 
sociology is full of different theories of analysis. Um, like Durkheim likes to use statistics to look at suicide rates, and suicide rates are a reflection of the movement of society, whether people feel they're left behind or feel that they're overwhelmed or anything like that. Durkheim thinks that's related to rates of suicide. But then how do we organize societies to be able to be analyzable with statistics and how does that impact society? That's like an example of what I like to look at. So what are our assumptions about social organization and how are those manifested through the ways we look at society and analyze society and how it's kind of a circular relationship. So that's kind of like what philosophy is for me. I like looking at society and just figuring out why we do things. And then what are the sort of philosophical roots of those answers and the methods we used to look at people? One, you, you kind of touched in there and you used a, 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 a couple uh, questions um, and, 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 and a couple terms. Um, is, there, is there one um, question in particular you could use to uh, frame why... Uh, philosophy could help us understand society? I mean, unlike the simplest way, like, just the question why. Like, if you ask that, like, I always think, like, philosophers were, like, the, um, were, like, the annoying kids that just keep asking why. Why? Why? It's like, <laughs> And a lot of people just end up saying, like, well, that's just the way it is. Well, I think for a lot of philosophers, like myself included, that's just, like, a completely inefficient and insignificant answer. Like, it's totally inadequate. We just keep asking why and why and why and why and why, and then we try to find explanations. But I think all of us philosophers kind of uh, understand that there is no right answer. There is no answer to the why, but it's fun to ask. Um yeah, so I think if I had to boil it down to one question that philosophers do, it's like, why? And then some other philosophers will get into more who's or what's or why's or when's or how's. Um, and I think a lot of those kind of questions get brought out into a lot of the other disciplines, but I think philosophy is mostly just the why. What do you think motivates philosophers to the question why like there are people who ask why and then there are people who don't ask why like is it is it some like do they see something that people don't see or is there a feeling like oh i just want to know or what is it um i think it's definitely the like i want to know i think a lot of it is like a dissatisfaction with our our world um especially in the western context i think the west is definitely a tradition of um falling into nihilism or individuality or like um, I think a lot of Western theory has made us all feel pretty empty and I think we all kind of try to find ways to fill us up differently um, so I think for philosophers at least in the Western context it's uh, we're just unhappy and I think a lot of philosophers in the West are just very unhappy people <laughs> I mean, like, it's stressful and it's, it's, it can be very depressing and you end up giving yourself questions that you can't answer. And that's just very like frustrating or you find answers, but you know that it could be a million other things or it could be wrong or 
um, it's just difficult. Um, but in like other senses, I think there's like a passion for it where it's just exciting to look at things in society and come up with cool explanations for things and um, just the ability to look at things in different ways. Um, and when you read philosophy, you find ways to look at things differently. It's like you're exercising your brain kind of to be able to lift different things and be able to have different perspectives around society and or just knowing or just your own individual understanding or or even to things like science and technology and understanding how mathematics works and why do we have mathematics and who decided that numbers were a good source of representation for the world and would numbers exist in the world itself if it wasn't for us talking about them and what comes out of language and like there's just so many things to like just talk about and wonder about and and just like play around with and see what you like and what you don't like so i mean for me i like i said i'm just pretty critical of society especially western society and like what we get out of it and what we consider truth and like what is truth you know like everything from big questions to little questions like or what we think is fundamental or essential but that might not be and so it can be very upsetting <laughs> when you think th there is something like human nature and then you study people like Nietzsche or Foucault and you're like, well, I guess human nature is out the window. Like, what do we do now? So, yeah, lots of different appeals, but there are two, there are two questions um, that you're, you're, you're talking made me think about um, one I'm curious. You you mentioned that you, philosophers of a Western society might be more um, negative on their outlook. I'm just curious. That question kind of just gave, made me curious. Have do you know of any uh, philosophers from say Eastern uh, society? Do they ask wildly different wildly different questions? Um. To be honest, I'm, I'm not involved in a lot of Eastern philosophy. The extent of my Eastern philosophy arguably just comes from like Nietzsche and his discussions of things like Buddhism. Um, I'm more focused on critiques of Western philosophy in terms of inter-Western philosophy like Nietzsche and Foucault and North American Indigenous philosophy. Um, and North American Indigenous philosophy is like, like Vine Deloria Jr., for example, just just demolishes people like uh, Descartes and Socrates and Plato and just shows how narrow their visions really, really are. And I think there's a lot of meaningful um, critiques of Western society and Western philosophy and thought from indigenous perspectives, especially mm. in North America, um, because that's mostly what I focused in. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, and I, I'm not super in tune with eastern philosophy yet so yeah that's totally fine um the the other question i have and this might be and this stems from my um how naive i am on this subject and uh, i apologize if it's a bit uh sounds a bit blunt um i can definitely find maybe better phrasing for this but you, I, I can like conceptually, I understand philosophy is the question of asking why. Does philosophy does philosophy overlap a lot with other fields? And the and the and the what I'm trying to 
um, uh, distinguish between is, let's say, psychology. You're in there in like human behavioral psychology. You're asking the question, why do humans act the way they are? Whereas some of the questions you brought up now were, why does society act the way it is? Is it possible to distinguish between those two, or is admittedly um, there a lot of overlap? I think it it definitely comes from an area of what your like core assumptions are about humans um, and ideas of Western individuality and the self. Or if you just you could we could just say individuality here, but um, like Nietzsche talks about consciousness being a late arrival. Like we don't have consciousness to begin with; it's formed within us. Um, but then you can ask like, well, how is consciousness formed? Um, like you could say, well, it's necessary for being able to act socially to be able to interact. Like we, if there was just one of us, would we have language and would we need it? Would we even need to speak? Um, so like the idea of a self is, is a fairly Western notion and people like Nietzsche and Foucault kind of point out where in history that kind of emerges as an idea um so would you have psychology if you didn't have an idea of the self so then that's like a, a big question and that's a question that i don't know if psychology as a discipline is asking itself that question because as a question that could undermine their entire field hmm. um i know in sociology right now Sociology has, is having like quite an existential crisis because everyone keeps asking like, well, what does sociology do? And how is that different from other disciplines? And sociology is like, the way they look at society is, um, it's very nuanced and it has a lot of core assumptions to it, to be able to, to be able to look at society. Like you have to, like if sociology is the study of society, philosophers can look at that and be like okay what is the study what does it mean to study why do we study why do we need to study and then society like well what is society does society exist is it anything more than a linguistic organizational principle that we talk about to be able to like identify something and that's something that sociology has to contend with um and like social sciences and humanities get a lot of flack because they don't have these grounding notions. And then a lot of that flack comes from STEM fields. But I think equally as much of that flack comes from philosophy where they're saying you have some fundamental assumptions about what your, like your modus operandi are, like what your operational goals are. But unless you can justify yourself in a foundation of like what you're doing, what are you doing? So I think philosophy has to overlap with other disciplines and i think because philosophy hasn't done that in so long with other disciplines i think most other disciplines have lost touch with their roots and lost touch with what they need to be able to establish themselves as disciplines so like i like the foucault example he has this book called the birth of the clinic and he talks about like where do clinics and hospitals come from and why are they the institutions that they are and he's uh he does a lot of like like discourse analysis but analysis of everything that was written in those fields everything from prescription notes and doctor's notes and doctor's logs and he looks at it and he says well what's going on here how do they establish themselves 
And he said to be able to establish the truth of their discipline and say with firm, um, like with, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of here? It's like a concrete way of saying it. You have to have a notion of what is truth. And if you don't have that notion of what is truth, how can you say what you're doing is truth? And that's a very difficult thing to contend with because arguably it's out of touch of the medical discipline to be able to establish that. Like, it's kind of a waste of time, right? You don't want to spend however many years studying to become an MD and then have to spend that almost probably the similar amount of time figuring out what truth is, and then you never get to an answer. So if you don't have that answer, where does your discipline go? It's like there's a lot of contradictory relations between where disciplines have a have to like grow from philosophy but still acknowledge their roots um and like a lot of these disciplines that emerge through human history have come out of philosophy ideas of classification and biology or arguably like aristotle and socrates and uh ideas of physics and like sociology like they have all had roots in someone who had like an active interest of why we do things why we do them differently and why we need to change that to be able to look at things in a different way why is physics accurate why is why does medicine work like what are the roots of biological classification that allows to identify disease and medicine and all these sorts of things so i think the overlap of philosophy is kind of everywhere i think we're at a weird time where a lot of philosophy is it's not a common discipline anymore it's not it doesn't pay well um there are arguably hardly any jobs for philosophers um and i think i think that's kind of an issue because i think we're uh we're kind of forgetting how to think and i think obviously thinking is very important it's not for everyone but at least in how we do philosophy but yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap, um, but I think there's a lot of people not wanting to have that overlap because it, it can raise a lot of problems. Um, just being in sociology graduate program for like a semester now, you can see how scared a lot of the departments are that they're going to disappear because there's so much infighting about what we should be doing as sociologists um that the discipline's having a real hard time justifying itself and it, it should i think every discipline should have to go through some sort of existential crisis like that to justify its survival but yeah <laughs> maybe not in the way that society would want go us ahead, to well oh, yeah i was just i was just wondering again you mentioned um a uh philosophy as or or, or, or like your your perspective on philosophy as being very focused around uh, critique and and i'm wondering like do you have a sense for when the critique for, for, for like the bounds of, on, on critiquing like at some point you know for all practical purposes we have to do things and you know we have to like study sociology or we have to we have to you know cure the patients or whatever um did, did you have a sense for like what, what the are for when ah okay we've critiqued, critiqued enough off. we can leave them alone for 20 years and then come back <laughs> um i think if it exists we should critique it like simply as that um 
And if it doesn't exist, that's when we can stop. <laughs> like, you're going to find, like, I, I'm of the inkling that truth exists in a particular sense. Truth isn't something that exists in the world itself. We invent True. truth. Okay. Because we invent the, the means of achieving truth. We invented logic. We invented science. We invented linguistic structures that can allow us to have and say, like, that's a true claim because of this and this and this. If you don't have language, you can't say something's true. And I think that comes in to, like, as long as we bring something into emergence, it's never going to be a true thing. It, it can't spit out truths. It can't, like, do this. It, it'll never be true of the world itself. And I don't think critique, like, I don't want to um, equate critique with destruction. Because I don't think we should just actively destroy things. I don't think we should just cancel things or whatever. I think it's important to recognize that things exist in the world. We have things. But there's always going to be something that we don't know about it. It's always doing something that we can't tell right mm. off the bat that we have to be able to look at and be like, okay, what's this doing? Why is it doing it? If we had different assumptions about the world, would this thing still exist or would it change? Would it have to change? If it could change because we had different assumptions about the world, would it be better than what we got now or would it be worse? And I think that's like an important thing to ask. And like, that's kind of what my project is doing. Like, um, for my master's, I'm studying artificial general intelligence or artificial intelligence. Um, and I'm, I'm worried that like, what if the Terminator happens? (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think it really would. And I want to know if it's possible. So I'm looking at, okay, well, it's going to exist. It, well, I think it could exist. Some people think it never would. But I think it's important to just critique it. And I don't see a lot of people critiquing it the way I want it to be critiqued. And that's why I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this and see how it goes. And if I still think it's going to be dangerous and be a risk to the human species, then eh, if I don't, oh well. But I think like just the notion of critiquing something is important to be able to look at it and be like, is this going to be better, worse, or whatever if we had different values in society or, um, yeah. So for like when critique ends, like I don't think it should. Right. But I I don't think we should just actively destroy things either because like, I think it's really important to critique things like medicine and the goals of medicine. So I think we should stop making vaccines. <laughs> no, I get headaches. I want Tylenol. Like these things are very important. We shouldn't get rid of them. Um, but I don't think that we should look to those things exclusively either. It's like if I get headaches because I'm a stressed out grad student. Well, that's a societal problem. It might not be necessarily a medical problem. But I'm just going to take a Tylenol. <laughs> you 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 mentioned um, also in there. Uh, the that in, uh, sociology has a lot of infighting um they're trying to de- redefine what their field is um possibly because of this or because it's also probably some other external factors there's issues with jobs and etc et, et so with all this all this chaos in your field what what is your motivation for being a philosopher what drives you what enthralls you why did you become a philosopher why okay it's a long story but um 
So I'll first premise this by being like, am I a philosopher? I don't know. I like to think these questions, but the problems of identity of like, I don't have a PhD. Does that make me a philosopher? I don't know. Anyway, and I'm in a sociology program. I think I'm an imposter there um, <laughs> because I do think sociology should like really reevaluate the shit that it's doing. But um, why did I choose philosophy? Um, so years ago, I, Tyler and I were doing some music or uh, live music videos and stuff. And I think we were talking about making a little company doing music videos. And then some other stuff happened. I don't remember. Um, but at the time I was looking up music videos and trying to figure out like different styles and different angles and different storylines and all that sort of stuff. And I was watching the music video by Radiohead for the song Just. And in that video, um, it kind of cuts in like Radiohead's playing an apartment above the street and there's some stuff in the street going on and people are walking. It's busy. It's, it's like New York or some other metropolitan city. And this guy just lays down in the middle of the road or sidewalk or whatever. And people are asking him, like, why are you laying down? Like, why are you doing this? And, and they're talking and it's subtitled while the music's playing so you can see what they're asking and whatnot. And then he gets fed up and he's like, fine, I'll tell you. And then he starts talking, but they cut it in a way you can't read his lips and there's no subtitles anymore. So you have no idea what he says. And then the next scene, everyone's laying down. No one's moving. Everyone's just like <laughs> on the ground. And it's tough to tell if they're like melancholy and sad or, or cheerful or just like tired and laying down or what. Like you, you can't really tell like why or what they're doing it for. And I like asked myself like, what the fuck did he say? <laughs> what did he say? Who? What could you say to be able to have that effect? Like when people are just like fed up or whatever, and they just decide they all are going to lay down, including a cop. There was a cop there, and he was laying down too. It's important to throw that in, I think. Um, but I asked myself, like, what's what's going on? What's he saying? I was asking some friends, like, watch this. Tell me what you think they said, and like. What do you think? And no one, like, every, people had good answers. But, uh, like, it, like, none of them really stuck. And a, another friend of mine said, well, maybe he said, like, God is dead. Like, from Nietzsche. And I was like, hmm, what does that mean? Like, God is dead. Like, doesn't make sense. So I started reading Nietzsche. And then I started reading, like, other stuff about that. And couldn't get anywhere, so I decided to take some philosophy courses at Douglas College, and by some weird fluke, like, there was a, like, a Nietzsche scholar there, and, like, I didn't realize how lucky I am, because there are not a lot of Nietzsche scholars, especially in, like, colleges and stuff. Um, they're very few and far between, but I found one. Um, so I studied that and I studied a lot of philosophy and I wasn't doing it for a job or anything. I just thought I'm just going to take these classes and eventually I decided that, oh, okay, maybe my degree, maybe I should finish my degree. Excuse me. And then I went to UFV and lo and behold, there was another Nietzsche scholar there. So I kind of lucked out. Um, and I just loved it. I never kind of got tired of it. Um. If you haven't read Nietzsche, I'd recommend it. He's a joy to read, unlike 90% of philosophy. Most philosophy is uh, 
very dry and boring and I don't think worth reading much of it, but um but Nietzsche's great. He likes poetry and writing in cool ways and questioning things and he was like one of the first major people in uh Europe to critique enlightenment thought, which like is arguably one of the biggest foundations of our modern society right now. So um I don't know, I just loved it. I never got tired of it, so I just kept going. And here I am still still going. So maybe we can unpack that 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 second part. You know, you're 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 continually pursuing this field because you it 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 drives you and you you, you like the 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 feeling it gives you to understand the world. Um but you all but in your field and in, and in like many others, you also have to tackle this other narrative um, that you that society gives you. Um, and I and I and personally, I always try to disagree with this narrative um, every chance I get. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are are on it. You mentioned this in your previous answer. Um, and it's that narrative that you know STEM fields are the best fields um, because they hold actual value. Um, that's why you see you know STEM fields getting all this money. Um, STEM being science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, whereas, you know, the other fields, sociology and et cetera, their departments are shrinking because, you know, they don't bring economic value is my assumption. Um, but I think these, um, other academic fields do bring some value, you know, it might not be economic, it could be emotional. So what is what's the value that philosophy brings why 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 should it not be shuttered and cease to exist and you can speak from that from a sociology standpoint or a philosophy standpoint that's tough and i think that's why philosophy is like one of the most underfunded disciplines uh because there's it's very hard to justify economic value in philosophy um because philosophy is not like it wasn't a field developed within capitalism. And I think that's like important to note that it's not a field that has sort of a productive or monetary basis at the core of it. And there are parts of philosophy that do have that. I think a lot of, um, like you have, uh, like ethics is a big field, but I think capitalism would probably prefer not to have ethics kicking around. Um, but like a lot of disciplines utilize ethics, but I think it's also a problem too, because a lot of disciplines can only utilize a certain type of ethics and it's the ethics that are operational within their own fields. And I think that's an issue. So I think the value of philosophy is like probably at the core is trying to find meaning in things. So where do we find meaning in society? Um, Capitalism, for example, has a very strong bias towards economic value and monetary value and production. And philosophy is one of the few, few things that can look outside of that and be like, well, what else is there? Is exchange value and like money, is that the best for us? Um, and like, you can come up with different answers, but like how many other disciplines consider value? meaning comes up in psychology and a little bit in sociology i don't know how much it comes up in physics or biology but um 
but I think there's like a drive in certain disciplines to get to it, like from point A to point B. And I think philosophy is like, why do we have a drive? Why is that necessary? Like, is civilization a good thing? Like, is what we've done a good thing? Um, and like, I think philosophy is able to step out of those paradigms and be able to look at something a bit more critically and with a bit more nuance. Um, but I, th I think it's also a little bit detrimental because, because you see what's happening now, like philosophy departments are underfunded. There are arguably like very, very few jobs for philosophers to actually do. And they almost always require some extra amount of education. Um, like philosophy graduates, I think have one of the highest enrollments in law school because LSATs and logic just go hand in hand very well. Um, so you have like, so like you can see a lot of philosophers becoming lawyers, but you need a, a, a law degree to be able to do that. Um, so there's like not a lot of jobs with it. So it's quite a struggle. It's kind of like a circular process where because there's, it's a very hard to attribute value to philosophy as a discipline, like monetary or capitalism um, values, capitalist values. It's very hard for it to survive. So you have less people going into it, but then because you have less people going into it, you have um, a lot of other things that emerge that wouldn't have if more people had studied philosophy, I think. Um, I think it teaches you a different way of economic value. value, but our system is supported by things that can gain or achieve economic value. So even what things society does still need in our capitalist epoch, it's hard for philosophy to be able to provide those things um, because it's still operating largely out of it. There, like, there is no economic value really to studying ethics or studying knowledge or studying like, like core values or social meaning, unless you can be able to sell it. And like, you can figure out some metaphysical idea of well-being and sell that, but <laughs> I don't know if a lot of us are really interested in that. Otherwise, you can make a meditation app or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's difficult because a lot of well, a lot of people I know who study things like that are like, well, we want to study like the value of wellness and then it's like well it's really like is it helping us as humans or is it just making us more complacent to be able to like get on with our day-to-day -day? like is it just like a start like a is it a uh, cathartic way of dealing with the oppression we face in our everyday lives or like handling capitalism like like if you had more wellness apps, could you work 12 hour days instead of eight? And like, that's a big question, especially in like sociology right now is how do you balance like helping humanity versus and like helping them with like a meaningful sort of like way, or are you just making another band aid? And I think without like critical thought like that, like I think it's very easy to fall into it. Like, well, like, well, like I grew up thinking like, if you can't monetize your hobbies, like what's the point, but like hobbies can help people. Like it's good to relax and distract your mind and do something that like might give you another source of value over another. Um, but like how much of that is because you want to do it and it's fun or how is it productive or is it just make you feel better because work sucks sometimes. And like, I need to deal with work, so I'm going to come home and like, 
do some yoga and drink some whiskey or snort some cocaine or whatever people do to like handle their day-to-day existence. And then like, why do we criminalize some things and not others? Like, everyone deals with shit different ways. <laughs> so, like, is cocaine use bad? Is it worse than like, like if we're talking about it in medical sense, is it worse for you than working nine hours at a factory of a, or a asbestos mine or whatever? Like, Arguably, ones were way worse than the other, but anyway, I, th- <laughs> I keep digressing. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think philosophy is central to be able to like looking at all these different things and trying to figure out a different way of it. Will I think it'll survive capitalism? I highly doubt it. I don't think philosophy as a discipline has much longer to live. But as long as people are questioning shit, then I guess it'll survive. Like, but academically, I think it's it's in mm-hmm. some deep shit. Like, there's a lot of universities that are cutting out philosophy entirely. Um, And, like, my undergrad, like, my upper-level philosophy classes, um, they rarely had more than 12 people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, like, indicative of something. Whereas my sociology undergrad classes... And UFV isn't a big school, to be honest, but my sociology classes would have 30 to 40 people in it. The business Mm -hmm. classes would have, like, to 50 and there was only i think one classroom that could hold that many people um but yeah i think philosophy's got a reckoning coming unfortunately i'm wondering what you think about like the um those those philosophy majors who end up pursuing law um and 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 other sort of um ostensibly more practical uh uh, paths um do you think, you know, in a perfect world where there's a ton of money for academic philosophy, do you think a lot of those students would well, actually way prefer to be academic philosophers? Or do you think that, like, maybe most of them or like, a lot of them are motivated to be, like, lawyers, but they really like the way that philosophy makes them think or or something like, something like that? And, like, and, and maybe if I could add on to that, is it possible to be a capitalist and a philosopher? philosopher. Um, oh, yeah. For philosophers becoming lawyers and stuff after. Um, I think it's like a mix that... Like, I went into philosophy because I loved it. um, And I still love it. But I went into sociology because, like, as an addition to that, because I knew I'm not getting a job, which is a philosophy degree. So I kind of thought, like, what can I do that still has the residue of philosophy that, even if I get a job adjacent to it, like in sociology or some field of that, I can still study philosophy on my own time and be able to utilize that knowledge and work, but also like that I can keep it separate. I think it's very, very, very important to keep hobbies that are like monetizable. I mean, you could argue from an entrepreneurship point of view that everything is monetizable. Um, But I think it's important to keep things that you're like, that you love separate. Um, if you want to monetize something about it, I say, cool, go for it. Um, but I think more often than not monetizing something in your life is going to ruin it. And there's a whole body of literature that kind of goes along with that from like Marx to Dorno to like all the way forward. Um, and that's a big critique is like exchange value and use value and like it use value 
It's like you have utility of something. You can find value in it outside like a monetary relationship. And then there's exchange value, which like Marx and Adorno argue is like the venom of capitalism that as things become monetized, they become pure exchange values and they lose that use value. And because they lose that use value, they lose a lot of like human meaning within them. So I think it like, I'm not like agreeing with capitalism or disagreeing with it here. I'm just saying like, this is some thought and this is like my perspective on it. So, um, that's just the analysis, but I do think it's valuable personally to keep th things separate. So like I have a few friends who are in law school right now, um, that I graduated with from philosophy and I think they like it because like logic is fun. <laughs> I know it doesn't seem like it, but, um, and I think people might disagree with that statement, but if you ever done like a Sudoku or something and you enjoyed it, that's a logic puzzle. And like, I don't want to degrade the value of lawyers or anything, but maybe a little, but, um, like a lot of law is just logic problems, figuring out what statutes say, which is discussing the meaning of the words, which is big in philosophy, obviously, and how the structures of that statute or law or whatever kind of factor into the situation at hand. So you derive certain premises about the situation at hand, match them up with situations from statutes and laws and see how they fit. And that's like, that's a lot of what philosophers do. So I think a lot go into law, not only because they statistically get the highest LSAT scores, but also because there's a lot of residue of philosophy in that process of legal analysis. Um, and that's why I went into sociology. And even if I end up working for like a consultation firm or StatsCan or like some governing agency that like looks at society and helps decide policy and things like that, I think it's a very useful because I can keep studying on my own time about like, what does society mean to me? And like, how do these things have different interplays and be able to use that in the job without too much interrelation? Mm. Um, so, and then capitalists as philosophers, can a philosopher be a capitalist? And everyone's a capitalist, whether you like it or not. That's just the situation we're in. And I think thinking like the way I just explained why people who study philosophy go into different fields is a, is a massive reflection of that. Unfortunately, like with the situation as it is now, we need to work and make money and like trying to balance your passions with the ability to make an income without eroding those passions. It's like a tightrope walk we all have to do. And, uh, it's tough. Uh, if people wanted to like, and that's the other thing, like academic philosophers, that's like the main job that you could get just studying philosophy, but you do need a PhD to do it. It's extremely competitive, uh, <laughs> brutally competitive because that's like, what you can do. I know some people who have gone to work at like consultation firms who consult on things like, um, like with Starbucks and stuff like that, that manage these big firms. But I mean, I don't know, like that, that contradicts a lot of the values that I have, but like eventually I'm going to have to sacrifice those values. I have a lot of disagreements with the structure and existence of states like Canada is wrought with issues 
like everything from economic manipulation to genocide. But, but we also have to contend with like, I'm going to have to work and government jobs are good, but maybe I can help mitigate some of those other issues if I got into those. But then you also have to wonder, like, is that the Sisyphean problem? Like, am I just going to be pushing a rock up a hill forever, just like fighting it? And is that like, is that stress I want to deal with? So it, I don't know. It's a big question, but yeah, I think I think we're stuck having to figure out how we want to make money and providing something that useful to society is the unfortunate thing that we have to do. I wish I could just read Nietzsche and get paid money all that time. <laughs> that's not gonna happen (laughs) i really i really liked the uh phrasing uh it made me think a lot the everyone's a capitalist because they have to be to essentially exist i never thought about it that way but then when you explained it i was like oh i guess technically we have yeah yeah (laughs) like i abhor capitalism like i think what it does to society is like terrible like i think it's one of the most destructive forms of like governments and social organization we've ever lived in. But I can't step outside it. Not on my own. Like we can't do that. But so before we get into um you know your your personal uh projects and plans and questions, I I, I do have one question that I wanted to run by you. Um and this and this stems from my history as a as a school teacher and really um, questioning and critiquing the curriculum as they have it um, for multiple reasons. Do you think that philosophy and these topics um, should be taught and and to some degree anyway um, to youths, say in school or, or or yeah in grade school? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I do think there's value in teaching it. Um, but the, and this is a, like, it would be very difficult to start because I don't know many, if any, um, grade school teachers that studied philosophy. And I think, I think there needs to be like a passion for it to study it. Like it's, it's, uh, there are very few of us who find it fun. And that might also be a reflection of like being deprived of it from, arguably your entire academic education from like kindergarten on. Um, but it could also be that it's not for everyone, which is fine. But I, I do think it's like important to see where a lot of our ideas and stuff come from. It's like we teach history. I'm personally very interested in the history of philosophy. Like certain ideas emerge at certain points in time. And that's a historical question. So I think incorporating some philosophical figures and trends in history could be a way of like two birds with one stone. You're going to be teaching history anyways. Why not include the philosophical thought at the time that people are like immersed in and how that is a representation of why historical events happen because there's a lot tied in between that. And I think that happens like maybe a little bit now, but I don't know exactly what the curriculum is, so I can't speak too much to it. Having like an independent philosophy class I think would be really cool for the people who want to like get more into it I think there should be some definite exposure of it like throughout your education because I 
like I do think it's a very important thing to know. Even, like like I said, even just the history of it without being taught like like what is Nietzsche's ontology? Like that's that's a ridiculous question in high school. I think um, not many people are probably going to be interested in that. Um, but being exposed to like like if you're talking about ancient Greek history or Roman history or like even that general epoch, I think it'd be good to talk about like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and just a little bit about what they thought about the world. Because like Plato like is a huge, huge figure and understanding what was going on at that time and how that thought that he had kind of mirrored things like Christianity. I think, I think it's a pretty relevant social thing to be able to know um, and kind of like have as like a sort of basis of understanding. But yeah, dedicated philosophy class, I think it'd be really cool. I think it'd be, I don't think you need to do it like before high school, but I think having that, even as an elective in high school, would be something great. And that might address the problem of not having to have all the teachers educated in it or all the teachers in that area educated in it. Um, but you can have, you can arguably get away with one professor or one teacher in a high school being able to teach general philosophy. And you wouldn't need like, I'm sure you'd have like a lot of PhD doctorates come and apply for that because there's not not a lot of other options, but I don't think it'd be hard to find people working on it. But I also think like, <laughs> like just as a general use thing, philosophers know how to write. Um, like, and they're one of the few disciplines I think that actually teach writing and having philosophy education in like a high school setting I think would be like super valuable to teaching students how to write for university or just every day because it really, really, really forces you to be articulate about what you're talking about and how to demonstrate that and how to write clearly and how to like think about very complex things and put it on paper. So like, I think there could be like an economic use to that because you're training people how to write like that. Um, and one example of that is I think France in the, early to mid 1900s had philosophy as part of their undergrad or not undergraduate, but, um, secondary education, whatever they call it there. And that's a big reason why there's such like a huge, um, emergence of French philosophy in like, like through the fifties to like the eighties and nineties. It's because like all those people were educated in philosophy during their grade school years. So when they went on to university and everything, they were ahead of most people who finished their undergrads here like with their philosophical education, you get huge questions and huge answers and huge changes to like disciplines like sociology, where like Foucault is huge. Now we have like Purdue and Sartre and like the entire discipline of psychoanalysis is like, you can trace so much back to it, to French thought. And would that have existed without a lot of immersion in philosophical ideas in people's teenage years? I don't, I don't think it would happen otherwise. Um, but uh, I, I don't think it'll ever happen here or the States, for example, because um, I think there's an active interest in not teaching people how to think. Like, so can I give you, can I, can I, can I interject? Um, so, so the, so this is, the, this is my curiosity of this question, especially when you're just getting here, you don't think it would change, but the, but the, through this entire conversation, one thing that, I, I realize that, or, or I think, is all the words that you've been using are interestingly 
the words that you get on the teaching mandates. So <laughs> in, in British Columbia, for example, one of the teaching mandates is to foster critical thinking and creativity. <laughs> and, and to me, it's like critiquing things and questioning things and being able to, you know, like you, you, you tackle, you know, maybe in history or whatever, you get into some complex social thing, you know, just the classic example of, we just say it's capital punishment for the easy sake. And then it's like, okay, you know, maybe, you know, make them write an essay or whatever on what their opinion is and then give them like some assigned readings. Maybe there's a more creative way to do that. Give them some assigned readings on, you know, Kant and all of their opinions and now write it again. And how does your opinion change? Does it change? Um, and I don't know. It's, 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 it's weird to, it's weird to me to think, um, that it, it shouldn't be there because everything you've said sounds like it would perfectly fit with what we want to do. My secondary worry is that, that we have a bunch of anarchists it's who question everything. everything. Yeah. Cause that's what happens. Like May 68 in France, there was that pretty big uprising there. Was that, was that because of philosophers? philosophers? A lot of philosophers were at the head of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Like Sartre and Foucault and Foucault were like were up there and Simone de Beauvoir, they were they were up there. They were trying to find like directions for that movement to go and to be able to organize it better. And like would that have happened if they didn't teach like I, I'm not a fan of direct causality. Mm -hmm. Um equating that event to being sourced from people being taught philosophy in France. Like, I think that's probably a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely think it had a factor. Um, but like, if you gave people the tools to be able to meaningfully critique their society, like if everyone thought like I did, for example, um, <laughs> I don't think Canada, Ooh, how do I say this without like setting off a dinger at the FBI or something? <laughs> um, let me just leave it this way. I don't think the world would be as fucked up as it is now. Like if everyone was taught how to think a bit more critically and given, and not just like, um, like telling people to teach people to be critical thinkers. I don't think it's effective. Um, I think you need to be, that's like teaching someone how to build a house without giving them like knowledge and how to use like a saw and a drill. Like, like you're not giving them the tools to be able to effectively complete that task. Um, so like, I think there needs to be like people actively being taught like methods of critique. And there are a lot of methods of critique that fit very, very well with the system that we're operating within. And I don't think that's a mistake. Like, I don't think it was deliberate because I, I don't, I don't think like deliberate causality is like a meaningful way of looking at things, but I, I don't think it's a coincidence that society has emerged in the way it has and our modes of critique fit with that and i think that's a huge problem that's why i like looking at things like indigenous philosophy because it's an it's a fundamentally outside perspective of what we get in western thought and you get people like foucault and adorno who touch on this being like you we have such a dominant and strong rational um, organization within Western society and arguably like the world now for the most part. Um, and it's very hard to think about something that can 
step outside of that and meaningfully change that system because we're so good at thinking of things that work within it because it's easy. And we might think it's like very rich and everything and like diverse and, but it, it can very easily reinforce the same system. Um, and like in, that's Adorno's critique is, or Horkheimer and Adorno's critique is, if you're operating with that same rationality, and for them it's the Enlightenment rationality that structures a lot of our means of critique and everything, um, you're, you're never going to critique your way out of it because it has such a high burden of truth. And it's hard to compete with truth values that fundament, like are fundamental to our society because you need to have truth values to be able to critique truth values. But if the problem is within truth values, how do you critique that? And it's a very difficult thing. And Adorno's parent or uh, um, paranoid about this because he thinks, yes, with this rationality, we've gotten some awesome things. We've gotten medicine, we've gotten like physics and science that's figuring out how to like get to space and travel the galaxy and like we're designing amazing technology and all this but the same rationality that gave us that gave us the holocaust and that's a problem they had the same justifications arguably the same technologies the same organizations the same political structures a lot of those commonalities are not a coincidence like there's a problem there and we should look at that but how do you look at that with a different methodology that can be meaningful for society to understand because that's what we need truth for to be able to justify what we're saying but how do you counter the system of justification to be able to critique something like that's it's like an impossible question but it's a necessary one and like adorno and horkheimer thought the only way to get out of that certain system was to use art like figuring out how we could use art as a mode of critique because art doesn't necessarily fit in with that system of rationalization but i don't mm. think that's a sufficient answer just because I think art kind of falls into that same category. You financialize art and you get people like Banksy trying to emerge from that, but then Banksy's stuff turns up in art galleries anyway. So it, like, it just falls into that same system of subsumption. So I think, I think it's very difficult to balance that. Um, but like teaching students how to critique, like, like it took me four years of reading to figure out how Adorno was like, structuring this critique of society and i still don't think i know it super well and like adorno's or sorry uh nietzsche is a fantastic critic um but he's also extremely difficult to access because he doesn't write like clear distinct essays and he can't because it falls into that same trap so you have to figure out how he's critiquing things through aphorisms and poetry <laughs> it's not easy it's super difficult and then you get a lot of people misunderstanding Nietzsche or think he's like a right-wing fascist when he actually like almost exclusively argued against that that way of thinking. So it's it's very difficult. I don't I personally don't think it's going to happen. And we'll get another like if America doesn't turn into the next Germany in the 40s I I'd be surprised. Um, anyway, that's a long-winded rant for like justifying teaching high school students how to be critical. <laughs> but um, I definitely think philosophy is necessary. But I think if it's taught improperly, it could be it could swing the total other direction. Um, and and that's 
um, like that's exactly what happened with Nietzsche. His sister didn't fully understand what he was doing. And she rewrote a lot of his notebooks to represent the Nazi party in Germany. And there's a ton of literature showing that, but society still thinks that like Nietzsche is a fascist because of this misrepresentation. And it's a very contentious issue. You know, like, well, if he was able to be misrepresented in that way, is it not still the same thing that he came up with these ideas that represented the Nazi party? Um, hmm. So, like, even the philosopher who I think is arguably one of the most anti-fascist of the last 200 years can be seen as someone who is pro-fascist. That's, that's a little fucked in my opinion. I, I think it would be very hard to implement philosophy. Um, but it just makes me curious about the consequences of maybe not doing so or not trying from a, from a teaching perspective. I don't really, and again, I don't really have a question or answer to this. This is more just my thoughts. Yeah. Because if you, the consequences of not teaching someone seem to go through people's it could definitely put us where we are now, where there's, I, I can see an argument for a lot of the uh, the extreme opinions that we have in society, possibly. And I can also see how it can lead to issues in like my own field in science, where science, sometimes the idea of it at its purest is come up with a question, answer the question. But there's a lot of people, there's a tendency sometimes or a trap where people will come up with a question without considering or critiquing whether or not it's a good question. But that's also a philosophy question in and of itself, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what's, what's a good question? <laughs> so kind of moving on from the, uh, from the, you know, the heaviness of that topic that we just kind of uh, uh, went through. Kind of let's go to something more, more lighthearted. Light so, so you're 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 you're, you're, you're <laughs> well you're you're trying to be a philosopher. You think you're an you think you're a philosopher, even though some people might consider you an imposter. A philosopher. I consider myself an imposter. So so you're so 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 what is the life of an imposter philosopher? Because a lot of the times you're you're referencing these books and and whatnot. Um, so do you often just you know sit there? at a coffee shop just reading a book and being like yes i am pondering this question that this book brought up and i'm going to think about it some more and derive off of it what's life like of a philosopher? philosopher um i mean i'm not gonna lie and say that's not part of it <laughs> i mean there is a lot of caffeine in one way or another um but and i like for a lot of uh philosophers through history that that was the way to do it uh i fundamentally disagree with that I think like cutting out and doing things and experience things is going to give you just as much influence as writing things and reading things. That's just my outlook. Like there's the, the trope of the armchair philosopher where they just sit and think and, and like that's Descartes book. Like it's just him sitting there or most of his books and just sitting there and like thinking about things or looking at his window or caught like, I can't imagine living like Khan did. He just sat in his house so much and just wrote and read. And there's like 
the story I keep hearing about him, like people used to say that they could sit there watch to Kant's walks because he'd go on a walk the same route at the same time every single day. And like, dude, that's such a boring life. <laughs> if people look to you for their clock because you're so regular on something, that must be very <laughs> exciting. Um, and I think it's reflected in his writing. If you ever read Kant, and I would recommend not doing it um, to most people, it's miserable. It's terribly written. It's difficult to read. It's annoying. Um, his his choice of words is bizarre, and his sentence structure is just brutal. And and I've heard people say that it's easier for Germans to read the English version than it is for them to read the original German version because the translation ended up being better because they fixed a lot of shit. And it's still a nightmare. Like, the critique of pure reason is a mess. You need to read a good chunk of it in my undergrad, and no thanks. Um, but And, yeah, there is a lot of reading in philosophy. Um, reading and writing. And I think writing is probably the more important part. Um, I write a lot. I wrote my grammarly yearly insights or not yearly it's like weekly actually i think um and in i think november and december i wrote like five hundred thousand words and i'm like how did i do that like what the fuck is that five thousand pages? pages but is it, it no words five hundred thousand words but 500 words is roughly a page so that's about five thousand pages. pages yeah <laughs> but i just write constantly all my notes everything um, and then uh, like school papers and stuff and like just I like writing so I just write anyway it's a nightmare but I think and it's it's not organized at all it's a mess it's like Kant <laughs> if Kant didn't er, yeah my writing without editing is like Kant it's, it's a disaster and the organization doesn't make any sense brutal anyway um but you learn so much when you're writing in philosophy because you, you're forcing yourself to, like, you sit down with the text, you're like, okay, I'm reading Sartre. Like, what did he mean by for itself and in itself? And you can read the same paragraph a hundred times and have no fucking clue what he's talking about. But when you have to explain it, then you're like, all right, by for itself, Sartre means this because of this, this, and this in the text. And that's, like, basically what philosophy is. You're just writing out definitions. So many definitions. You figure out, like... What's he saying? Why is he saying it? Why is he saying it like that? And you write about it. Like, you just write. You just write. So there's a lot of writing. And unfortunately, that's like, well, I have a laptop, so it's wherever I, I can be. But normally it's at home in the, at the desk or on the couch or here in the room and we're at my office at school or on the plane, like wherever you can. Um, so there's a lot of reading, a lot of writing. Um, I try to carry my at least one book with me wherever I go so I can try to read sometimes, but that doesn't always work. Um, it's a lot of uh, notes in my phone because I like have an idea, but I have a terrible memory. So I like make a note of my phone. So I have like a notepad in my phone with all these, these ideas that I'll never, ever get to. But. Um, yeah, there's a lot of worry that I won't find a decent job or, or that I'll have to stop doing what I love, which is writing in books and 
writing papers and stuff like that. But, um, me personally, I like to cook. <laughs> I don't know if that's any relation. So I used to work you- at a brewery, which was like a huge cost savings, which was nice because philosophy and alcohol go hand in hand. Um, you get a lot of good ideas when you've had a beer and you're thinking about something you read. It's just like you loosen me up a little bit. Um, so alcohol and caffeine and cooking. <laughs> <laughs> but the you, you do a lot of writing. I'm assuming this is about um, whatever you know questions you're working on, whatever projects you're working on. What are, what are you working on, and what is what is what are you trying to critique in your own life as a philosopher? What what are you currently working on? Um, do you want to know like all my side projects too, or just like my main thesis project right now? Uh, what's the, what's the one that you know is is you fancy the most? Okay. Um, well, that would definitely be my thesis project. It's definitely occupying a lot of my thought. Um, but I'm working on um, looking at um, AGI, so artificial general intelligence, which is different from like what we normally talk about as AI or artificial narrow intelligence. Um, AI, as we know it now, is in like Tesla autopilot and Siri and um, like all those sort of things that just basically work on sophisticated algorithmic techniques to be able to like spit out answers at us and figure like, how to avoid car crashes and shit like that. Um, uh, I'm concerned with AGI, artificial general intelligence. Um, it doesn't exist yet. It's purely just in research phase and development phase. Um, not a lot of people have come to it. There's thought that it could happen once we get into more quantum, compute, quantum computing and stuff like that. But um, right now it's just a, sort of like people are like, we want this, we want to develop it. like. We want to get to it first because it's a capitalist economy and whoever gets there first gets the pie. Um, so you have a lot of companies trying to do this rapid development of it to be able to get to it quick. You have governments doing it, uh, military organizations and private companies. So like, it's just like a, a big race right now to be able to get to it first. Um, and because of that, there isn't a lot of talk about the ethics of it. And that's kind of what I'm interested in, but more so looking at um, what biases are we going to build into it? Um, no matter what you build, there's always going to be some residue of who built it. Um, like if you have ideas of geometric spaces and you build a house, it's going to be represented in geometric spaces with squares or rectangles or whatever. Um, there's And there's always a purpose to why you're building something. If you're building a house, you're building it for shelter, like something like that. If you're creating a technology, you're creating that technology for a use. Um, The development of AGI right now is missing a lot of these discussions. Um, People don't know what it's going to look like, like not only like how it's going to operate, but literally what it will look like. Is it going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator? Is it going to look like Hal from like 2001 Space Odyssey? Is it just going to be a box computer? Is it going to be like physical human body like no one knows really what it's going to look like um and there's not even really a question why like why are we making this i have have a bit maybe a naive question but um what is general like artificial general intelligence like what 
how does it differ from you know preventing car crashes in a in tesla like is it conscious or something or like yeah what is this yeah so it's talked about like with humans like us we have general intelligence okay so like we operate in the world because we have a general idea about this and that or the other and we can move within the world because we have a general idea of space and time and all this stuff so like a narrow intelligence is like an algorithm because it's missing these other aspects um okay so so, so like it can hop between like caring about different, different sets of factors, factors or something like this yeah so okay. um I'm not sure if you're familiar with the turing problem or the turing question yes but, but basically audience might not. <laughs> yeah um, but basically that um there's a point where um and i might be misrepresenting this because it's been a while since i've gone over it but uh you have a computer and there's going to be a point where the computer is unrecognizable as a computer um where like if you ask it questions or talk with it or whatever that you can't tell if it's different between a computer and a human mm-hmm. and that's basically the kind of consciousness or being or technology that they're trying to create with agi it's a general intelligence so um like you wouldn't expect tesla to do certain things like the the car um and the problem with that sort of artificial intelligence is um it's not super comprehensive so like tesla uses different strategies to be able to have self-driving cars whether it be like lidar or image recognition and like algorithms for like driving and it's continuously fed data so it keeps refeeding itself with new information and new movements and things like that um, but it's still not considered to be equivalent or better than human drivers. So like one idea of AGI might be that it could control a car better than a human, but that, that could realistically be just a, a factor of making a much better algorithm. So it could still be something that operates within ANI or artificial narrow intelligence. Um, artificial general intelligence could be something like, um, like I'm, might be talking to you right now and you're able to have a conversation with me and you might be a machine like an ultra intelligent machine or super intelligent machine i can't tell and like so so it's like sufficiently or like sufficiently intelligent yeah. or something to, to sort of fool human so yeah it might... exactly okay um so it could operate day to day like um blade runner like the like ryan is it Ryan Gosling and Blade Runner? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like, you don't know his, his character is, isn't is human. But, it, it, like, you couldn't tell just, like, when you watch the movie, if you didn't know, you'd be like, well, it's a human, like, whatever. But then we watch it more, and you're like, oh, it's like a, it's a, it's an intelligent machine. So, like, AGI would be something that would encompass that, Okay, for example. Okay, so 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 it's like a step beyond like Jarvis or Vision in Marvel because you kind of yeah. understand that that is an AI, whereas in Blade Runner, you're like I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, even Vision, you could be like, well, well, Vision without the Infinity Stone, I guess. It's like, so, yeah, so like Jarvis could be like an AGI technology because it seems like way more intelligent and it's able to compute large amounts of data and like still operate but it's not embodied like mm-hmm. jarvis doesn't have like a body but if you made a, uh, a machine or technology like that but made it embodied 
that it can have like human form and stuff like this. Arguably, you would be not able to tell that it's not a human. Hmm. So, like, and that's the problem I'm, I'm I'm considering is what is it going to be like based on what we have now? So, like, if you have a certain hmm. Based on our society and our culture and our values and where those values come from, I think we can get some indication of what it's going to look like. When you build something, it's always going to have some sort of residue of who made it, why they made it, how they made it. Like it's, it's going to have that within it. And I think how we think, if we're making a thinking being, how we think is going to be represented in that. So looking at historically our values, what's at the base level of our values, why we value certain things over others, and like how we live our lives is going to be a pretty good indication of what AGI would look like, how it's going to think, why it's going to think. And that's what I'm questioning. So I'm looking at um, like our society, like what exists in our society today. Um, And if we're making AGI to be a, a bigger, better us, it's going to be better at the good shit and the worst shit. Like imagine the the um, the serum that makes Captain America. Like Captain America is like a superhuman, right? Like, it, and that was the worry was like we got to give it to the right person because it's gonna amplify everything, and we want to amplify the good shit, not the bad shit. But the people who are creating AGI right now, I'm I I would argue aren't thinking like that. They're thinking let's just make it good or bad. Like we'll see what happens after and try to fix it after. And that's like. That's a strategy we use for a lot of technology. Just make it, and then we can fine-tune it and fix it. Um, but the worry I have with AGI specifically is it's not a technology that you can address after the fact. Once you create it, it's done. Whatever you put into it is in it already. So what's going to happen? Because we can't fine-tune it after. Even AI with Tesla, you can be like, all right, you know, the photo recognition thing isn't working so well. We're going to use LIDAR and lasers and um, things like that to be able to, like, help it out a bit better. We can always add shit to it or change stuff or, like, oh, it's not recognizing this in those pictures, so we can change that and fine-tune it. You can't do that with a consciousness. It's like, you can't, like, tell it to have a different essence than what you programmed into it in the first place because it's autonomous by definition. So I'm really worried about that. So I think, and that comes back to the Adorno problem. If you're making something that has the same rationality that gave us Western science, and which has given us lots of cool shit, but you're also giving it the same foundational rationality that led to the Holocaust. Like if we're amplifying everything, we better make goddamn sure that we don't have that part in it because that could be terrifying. And that could easily end up I think, to things like the Terminator, Matrix, or whatever, where you see machine intelligence going away that's like, well, you made me like this, and these are the values that you had, so I just amplified them to make it to be effective. And I'm worried about that because a lot of the values we have now are dangerous. We have values that we need to dominate nature. We need to exploit people and treat them like machines and cogs and just numbers in a system. We we think that we need to appropriate all our resources to be able to achieve thinking or to like 
keep growing, but growing for what? Just growing for the sake of growing. We just want more. We have people who are arguably in charge of these sort of projects who are saying like, we need to create more money. We need artificial intelligence to be competitive, whether it be economically or militarily or like anything like this. But, but no one's really talking about like what values, like where's the good stuff? Like we want more production, but production, why? Like we want more money, but money, why? If there's no end to it, like Elon Musk isn't stopping being like, all right, I have enough money. Like Bezos isn't be like, I have enough money. And if we idolize people like that in our society, I think it's a reflection of the values that we would be building into a system like AGI. And that worries me because if it's going to amplify shit. Like what happens if we times Jeff Bezos by a hundred? Like that growth comes at an expense at the other end. It's always like a scale one way or the other. So or Jeff Bezos might be like, or AGI Jeff Bezos might be like, well, I can make 10 times more money if like I figure out a better way to exploit people. Like maybe I can feed them in certain increments to be able to increase their productivity to a certain point where I can triple my income, but they don't matter because they're workers. They're not, they're not machines or they're, they're just for my use as production and, and using things like spreadsheets and stuff like that can amplify that. Cause you don't see people's faces in spreadsheets. You don't have an ethics of their body, their understanding, their, who they are, what they are, why they're working for you. So I think there's like everything that you can think about that's good in society, amplify that. And AGI could help us with that, but that could equally happen for everything that's bad in society. And I think we have a lot of bad in society. What do you think, and maybe as, as we kind of wrap up here, what do you think, if we made AGI right now, some sort of alien, you know, technology came down and said, we could do it immediately right now. What do you think would happen? I think the vast majority of people would be like, yeah, let's do it. What do you think the world would be like in say 20 years after that happened? I don't think it exists anymore. Just like based on what I know now and like what I've been researching and studying about like what values we are going to be building into AGI. I don't think it exists anymore. Not with life. At least I don't think there'd be any forms of life after. So it'd be either like a desolate desert or, you know, possibly exploded and just not even a planet anymore. Um, I think it would still exist, but I think it'd just be a rock. Hmm. I don't think you'd have any foliage or anything anymore. Like, uh, I think it'd be very scary. Might it be like a, (laughs) like a positive spin, but without humans might be like the matrix. (laughs) Like when they get out into the, like the real world. Although I think that's probably just another level of the matrix, but. Um, but yeah, I don't think, I don't think it'd be good. I don't think we would exist as a species anymore. Nature, like to an extent might, because like they probably like AGI might realize that, um, there needs to be certain premises met to be able to sustain life, to be able to sustain them, to survive them. Um, and if, if we did exist, I don't think we would have any sort of freedom or autonomy anymore because we don't think we need to give that to people now. So why would a intelligence being that is manifesting that idea and amplifying it, why would it think it's necessary to give us any freedom or values? So, like, I think it would really 
um, amplify any sort of human exploitation and any sort of physical exploitation to a point where it can still maintain its own survival um, regardless of the cost. Because that's exactly what the people at the top of our society do right now. And I think that's the same values that all the stakeholders are kind of operating within to develop it right now as well. Like self-preservation, survival on the exploitation of others. And I could be wrong. I could be so wrong. And I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> so because there are more negative consequences of the values that we, that our society are based on today, AGI would, like the, the, the negative consequences of AGI, the, the beneficial consequences. Yeah, because, yeah, I think a lot of the good we've had comes despite the bad. Um, like, I think the negative values, like, um, hyperproduction or, like, financialization for profit and stuff like that, I think that, uh, I think a lot of the good stuff we've had has happened despite that, because the, the core value there is to make money. Um, and if you think about it, like money is like the universal equivalent, right? Like it's, um, it's meant to be just a form of exchange, but you want more for self-preservation. Um, and like, when you look at the values of corporations, it's, it's more often than not about money. Corporations that create food for people aren't interested in solving world hunger because if they did and there was enough food and distributed well for everybody, then where's the demand? And we know from economics that if there's no demand, there's no value to be made economically. So why do it? Because you need money for other things and stuff like that. So you, you do it for the money. Um, why do we work atrocious jobs? <laughs> we work it for money because we have to eat shit. Um, so like, I think a lot of the, the values that the main stakeholders have in our society are production for monetary gain. And unless that suddenly shifted to be like, well, we want to maintain the health and safety of our society, then you do that. And I think we've been shown a lot during COVID-19 that um, we're not interested in changing as a society. We're interested in maintaining the status quo. And how do we maintain the status quo? By making people, like, I'm all for vaccines, but I think vaccines operate in a way that allows us to maintain the status quo. If we really wanted to avoid pandemics in the worldwide sense, why aren't we making communities more self-reliant so if things like this happen, they're able to not have to travel between societies like what if a virus could be spread by someone driving from Chilliwack to Vancouver to commute and they live in Chilliwack because it's too expensive to live in Vancouver and they need to commute well what happens when they go into the office in Burrard Street they catch COVID and then they drive back to Chilliwack and they sit at their their local pub and spread it there and to their families and then their families go to the school like why aren't we rethinking social organizations to be able to like help mitigate these problems? Well, because we have vaccines. Vaccines help us be comfortable and maintain the same status quo. And like, I love, I'm grateful we have vaccines. I've got two so far and I can't wait to get my third because I want things to go back to normal. But at the same time, like events like this in the past have changed society. 
And we're actively avoiding that change right now because we're relying on certain measures to be able to cure this. But if things keep happening the way they, they are, how do we know it's going to end? Like mm -hmm. if we rely on vaccines, but only first world countries are getting and using vaccines, like we're still going to be getting variants and the virus is still going to be changing and dominating us. So I think, I think we need bigger changes in society to be able to reflect different values, but we also need those different values to reflect change in society. And my worry is because we like maintaining our self-preservation and our cultural hegemony and status quo that those values are just going to stay the same. And the danger is the values, having the wrong values built into systems that we can't change. And why would they change from listening to us if after the fact we were like, hey, you know, we fucked up and we built this into you, but maybe we shouldn't have. It's going to be like, whatever. Because <laughs> we do the same thing now with previous generations or other cultures or things like that. Because we have ideas of history that we're all leading to a, a certain point, an ideal state, and that all of our history is deterministic to where we are now. And that's, that's another thing philosophy deals with is it can test that idea of history that linear idea of history because it gives us ideas and values like this so um yeah i want to see what values are going to be built into agi and i'm still at the very early stages of trying to figure that out and like all of this has stemmed from my worries about that so i'm not there yet maybe i'll talk to you guys after after i'm done and <laughs> see where i wound up if i'm more or less pessimistic but <laughs> Or optimistic, that's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot, man. No, know. this this is this is what we do. We we let you go and uh the 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 things that you add, like when you let someone go or just you know, they're they're absolutely amazing. Um like I think in those last twenty twenty minutes or so, the amount of just thoughts you put in my bread and my bread in my brain about how I'm thinking. You could already tell by, by, my bread is uh, completely scrambled. Um, but yeah, you put so many thoughts into my brain and it, and it really kind of summarized not only your project, but the importance of it. Um, just from, you know, letting you talk and, and, and putting in different contexts. Um, I think it gave me a very strong appreciation for, what you do and what philosophers do and it's almost and part of me is like hey maybe if we just take that segment and just like ship it to like, like your, your department, department. <laughs> uh the administration at your department maybe they'll see, understand why here it's important um <laughs> but with that with that being with that being said i have two two kind of uh final questions for you uh here um so you you've had a long winding journey to get where you are now uh, do you have any advice for people either looking to get into academia or becoming a philosopher? Um, do it if you love it. I mean, that sounds probably really cliche, but do it if you love it. If you find yourself reading philosophy and you want to like delve into it more, I'm not saying education is the way to go, like formal academic education because a lot of it is still really geared towards financialization and making money off things even a lot of philosophy um i can say that um it does make things quicker 
Like I learned how to write very fast and I learned how to write to express my ideas very fast. And I learned how to operate within philosophy very fast and to be able to like read how I need to read to be able to get what I can out of the text and stuff like that. Um, and if you like thinking like that, I say go for it. Like figure out, like try to figure out what you're interested in or what sort of philosophers or ideas you're interested in. And if you have the time, find an institution with people in it who represent those ideas. Um, like I said earlier, I got very lucky with the professors I found at Douglas College and UFV because it fit with my ideas and why I went back in the first place. If I had gone to SFU or UBC, um, who have um, largely analytic philosophy departments, there's very little continental philosophy or um, or uh, ideas like that floating around UBC and SFU, and if they are, they're they're normally in other departments. Um, so definitely find a school that represents what you want to study. Um, like philosophy departments are very political. Um, a lot of people try to deny that there's a divide between continental and analytic philosophy, which are like the two main streams right now. Um, but it's brutal. Um, I wanted to go to grad school at UBC because there was a prof there I really liked. Um, but they wouldn't give her permission to supervise graduate students. And it was kind of a bit fishy because she's one of the only women in their department and she's the only one that does continental philosophy in their department. Um, and I'm not making any statements about UBC, but that's kind of a shitty coincidence. Um, but I came to UVic because there are people in the sociology department here that study similar things to me, similar theorists. My supervisor is written on Nietzsche and Foucault, which is right at my alley. And they have the CSP program here for graduate studies that you can focus a lot more on theory and philosophy um, than you could at some other institutions that don't have programs like that. Um, don't be afraid to go back to school. I, I graduate, well, I finished high school when I was 18. And I didn't go back to school until I was 25. Um, so I'm a bit behind now. I'm probably a little too old to do a PhD. Um, uh, and I would definitely need to work and make some more money to be able to do that. Um, but I had a lot of jobs before I went back to school. And I'm glad I did them because it gave me different outlooks on society that I wouldn't have had if I came straight to university after high school. It's not too late to go back, even if you're getting older. I had people in my undergrad who were in their 60s that went back just because they thought it was interesting. And it's not bad to go back after. Like um, in Canada, at least, you can get a you can get mature student funding if you're over 25. Right. You get money, like extra money, to go back to school and extra funding. And if you take out student loans in Canada, which I had to do. Uh, if you get good grades, they give you a lot of money back. Uh, like they forgive a lot of the debt and they automatically apply you for grants. So every, every other September or so I get some extra grant money and, and uh, don't be afraid of graduate school because you do get funding. It's not a lot, but it's something. Mm -hmm. um, and if you like one worry I had going back was my grades from high school. Um, 
in BC, I don't know about elsewhere, but in BC right now, you can get uh, do upgrade courses to go back to school for free. Or, well, the course to upgrade is free. Um, so you can make up, like I had to make up a math grade and an English grade. Um, I did terrible in high school. So I did terrible in high school and I'm in grad school. So don't let your high school failings indicate where you can or can't go. Um, what else? I feel like um, philosophy is is a, is a really, um, is, is an especially good uh, major to get into later in life or, or like later in your 20s anyway, <laughs> you know, because you have some experience. Like... Yeah. making money like philosophy classes can be a lot of fun with the right professor and i feel like with with some life experience too you you, you kind of uh can confront the ideas a bit more intelligently or something. or something yeah yeah and like um if you're just interested in studying philosophy you don't need a degree or anything like if you're older and you already have a career why not just take courses like you can take courses for fun and like that's that's why I started. And like, I finished my undergrad with way more credits than I needed because I took like the same course section like six or seven times because it had different offerings each time, but they were fun. And like, I'm so grateful I did because we did full courses on Nietzsche and Sartre and Foucault and like 20th century Connell stuff. And like, oh, it was all the same credit. I didn't need to take it more, but I wasn't just interested in getting a degree. I just wanted to learn because it was fun. So I think going back to school is definitely better if you have that mindset. Like, I just want to learn about this and see what happens. Um, like, the degree is nice, but I found as soon as I started looking at the degree requirements to graduate, I started taking courses I wasn't happy with. And that sucks, but... I think at that time I had to come to the reality that I needed to graduate eventually. And like, I probably need to get a job after this. Uh, but now I'm in my grad studies. I'm definitely more focused on just getting the degree, but I picked the degree where I could study a lot of what I wanted to study. Nice, Except nice. for statistics. I have to take statistics this semester and I'm not looking forward to it again. <laughs> Do you even have to use statistics? Well, in sociology, to... yeah. I probably won't, but it might help with the job I get. So, <laughs> but yeah, if you, if you want to study philosophy, just go for it. And if you're in university now and you have a, don't let philosophy 100, the critical thinking class <laughs> define what philosophy is for you, <laughs> because that is, it's like a super basic logic class and it doesn't represent philosophy at all. <laughs> But I think that, a lot of people get that idea that it does represent philosophy because like most 100 classes do re represent that discipline. But philosophy is the one where like, uh, it just doesn't. And I've had discussions with uh, like my honor supervisor at UFE was the, the department chair. And we would talk all the time about just figuring out a way to make the critical thinking class just not a philosophy class. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people are turned off philosophy after that class. I would be too. It sucks. <laughs> but that is not just philosophy. Philosophy is way more fun. And the longer you're in it, the more fun it gets. Nice. Like the That's upper level stuff is way more fascinating than the intro stuff at the bottom. I definitely feel similarly about mathematics. Like
basically like mathematics is so much bigger than derivatives and integrals. <laughs> it's the exact same yeah. thing in science too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Philosophy is weird like that. All my friends who are doing like STEM stuff, they're like, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I'm like, mine just keeps getting better and better. <laughs> and then at the end, you don't want it to end because it's so much fun. <laughs> And then you actually know how to write and engage with the ideas. So it's, it becomes even more fun. So, and then you just get stuck in it like a pig in mud. <laughs> so Tyler, I have a singular decade long tradition in my interviews. Yeah. So we're going to continue this tradition and you've seen me give this question multiple times. We were taught in grade school that we should all strive to learn at least one thing every single day. So Tyler, what is your favorite fun fact or something that we should all or could all take and learn from you? Could be anything. Could be philosophy. Could be a life hack. Could be how to do your laundry. I don't care. The last words of this podcast are yours. It's up to you. You have the floor. You're probably wrong about absolutely everything you know, but that's okay. I don't want no lunch, all I want is potato chips. Potato chips, how my mouth does be potato chips. Oh, zip, 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 crunch, crunch. I don't want no lunch, all I want is potato chips. 